So the Satipatthana practices, the four Satipatthana practices, we come to the fourth. We came to the fourth yesterday already. <clears throat> the foundations of mindfulness, foundation practices, building stable bases for our lives, building a stable tracks for the train of our lives to run along. I like the idea of a foundation. Sometimes it's translated as establishments. Something very reliable about these practices. They're essential, actually, considered essential. More than essential, the Buddha actually made extraordinary claim about this form of meditation. He said, um, he said things like, this is the direct way to end all suffering. This is the direct practice to bring us to complete freedom. Directly. He said, it's quoted, if you practice this way, if you just do these practices for seven years, you'll, you'll attain all four complete levels of realization. And then he said, actually, if you do it for six years, then he said, actually, if you do it for five years, if you do it for four years, three years, two years, one year, one month, seven days. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost like a guarantee. He says, I guarantee. But of course, it means rest in mindful awareness 24-7. <laughs> but when we establish the, this kind of degree of mindfulness, it's... It, it's a guarantee. Like this is thy direct way to to see what's in the way of your beautiful clarity, and for it to be released because it's seen and understood, seen and known. Hmm. When we we live in um, just conscientiousness, we become increasingly conscious. A life, it happens as we mature anyway, somewhat, lurchingly. We go from the, uh, we go from small to big anyway. Like a wise person who we know has got a very broad understanding of life and situations and great perspective on things. We go to the elders. They have lots of experience, so they have now seen lots of change and understand. We don't go to the ones new or, you know, all caught in a particular scenario. We go to someone who's got a much bigger overview. This is what aging is. This is what happens anyway. When we're less wise or less experienced, we are very taken up with particular this particular detail, this particular situation, that particular person who said that particular thing. We're very preoccupied with the particulars, and mostly, of course, the particulars as they pertain to me, moi. As we move along in life, we see the particulars in terms of life unfolding. We see increasingly the commonality of things, the general shared aspects of the particulars. We don't not see the particulars, but we see them sort of belonging in their matrix rather than standing alone. 
In general, we do this. And in our meditation, we do this. So this, this um, becoming more conscious moves in the same way in meditation. Meditation practice begins with particulars. We begin with particular instructions, notice particular things. We learn specific practices, techniques. We look at this. We look at the breath. We look at particular sensations in a particular part of the body. We look at some, some we, we learn to notice bits and pieces, if you like, of our experience. In fact, we deliberately separate out the mishmash and find particular aspects of practice. The Buddha had a mind that was able to do this, to take a complex and tease it apart and find all the components and how they work together. So we train ourselves in meditation in this way, starting particularly specifically. So we learn techniques. We learn different kinds of emphasis. Um, We do a practice on this, or we learn that practice, and so on. But what happens as we continue on this journey is uh, we begin to realize how things start hanging together. We start to see that that description of something in my meditative experience is another way of seeing this particular thing. And they start to become unified in a way. Our understanding starts to put it together. We start by taking things apart so that we can really get a handle on it, if you like. But it all eventually starts coming back together. So our under- a moment of understanding could be described in different particular ways. So I could be able to describe a moment where I'm caught up as being caught up or a moment of hindrance, a multiple hindrance attack, perhaps, um, or a moment, um, I can't even think of other other teachings like now, when um, there's a physical situation going on, um, when there is a reaction to a previous situation. I can describe lots of different ways of seeing, perceiving my experience, but it's the same experience, a moment. Meditation practice gets to be like this. We, we, we learn a bit of this, a bit of this. Somebody described something. The Buddha had all these lists of things. So we learn what this list means and what that represents. And we practice that and get to understand how that is meaningful for me. And then we learn a different one. And we discover that's just another way of saying the same thing. It starts to become a body of knowledge. It's how we learn anything. We start with pieces of data, information, and then they become a body of knowledge as they sort of start to make sense of each other. And then as we move along in our life, knowledge starts to become integrated in our system. So we don't have to remember information or we remember a chunk of knowledge. We become affected and informed by what we know. I often use the example of you teach a little kid. I live in the country, by the way, and I've always for all my adult life, heated my house with wood. You teach a little child that the, if they touch the wood stove, it'll, be, it'll burn them, you know. Well, and so they learn, and they hear the words, and so on and so on. But pretty quickly, it's not knowledge, it's wisdom. Like, they know it. Their system knows it. They don't need to use their heads anymore. It's like already in them. It makes it, they will walk around quite a distance from the wood stove without you having to tell them, without having to remember anything our meditation practice starts to 
hang together in in ways that we understand it sort of in its bigger form and then it actually affects us so we become wise the satipatthana sutta is taught in the same sort of approach in the same progression we start with learning about the particulars of the body you know we learn you know the sensations of the body the different sense doors of the body the movings of the body the breathing of the body different different pieces of the body so on and so forth how the body changes as it ages as it dies and so on then we become more uh, more subtle all of those aspects of having a body with intelligence in it can be seen in terms of the qualities of our experience as we went to the second foundation of mindfulness it's not so particular it's not so specific it doesn't we don't have to separate out which things are which all of our experiences when we're here alive have these flavors these qualities of pleasant and unpleasant it becomes more general we begin to then look at in terms of our mind and the third foundation of mindfulness and how we're responding to what state of our, is our mind in this situation and in this situation what's the mind doing with the situation how is it interpreting the situation what spin is it putting on the situation and we start to see that they're separate there's what's going on and there's then my mind and how it's perceiving how clearly is it perceiving or how how much distortion is it perceiving what is it making it into what's it doing what stories is it telling how entangled or how clear how many periods <laughs> how much stream of consciousness before we get to a period is happening in the mind we see this then when we get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness it's it's like the truth of our lives being described in terms of the bigness of how it all hangs together so the dharmas which is the mindfulness of the dharmas the fourth foundation is mindfulness of the truths as gil said that word truth but it means i mean it's true with if i'm getting rattled with the border guard it's true but the truth of the dharmas the dharma truths are the big ones they're the sort of overview truths and when it gets to the to the uh, teachings of this aspect of the satipatthana there are um five lists of lists <laughs> it's the lists of the lists pra- practice so one of the lists that which sometimes a whole retreat will be on one of these lists li- which we, we we've done together Gil and I several times taken one of these lists and taught about them each day one of them um the five hindrances he was mentioning last night the commonest list that is ta- taught at retreats because we better get to know these hindrances i call them our extended family <laughs> you better know them <laughs> how they operate and when they're here and get to recognize it so that's the first one um but there's another list which is in the dharmas the five aggregates the five ways that we think we are a person and the way that person functions it's taking apart the sense of me into the various functions that we have and how we operate seeing them taking them apart so it doesn't seem such a real me there are the six sense spheres the sense of me operates with sights and smells and sounds we can actually take our experience apart into those 
the seven awakening factors, the seven qualities which need to be, we need to be abiding in in order for awakening to happen. Beautiful ones. I might mention some of those later. It's a beautiful list. Um, and then the four ennobling truths, the way to actually perceive reality in these different four ways. I'll probably mention that later on too. So there you've got five lists of five, five, six, seven, and four things. But the Buddha describing a person living a life and having a moment of experience according to the dharmas is a description of you having a moment of your life, a conscious moment of your life, seen in its most hanging together form, if you know what I mean. Least about you, your story, your fear, your need at the moment. The most generic. Us, people, consciousnesses, longings, struggling me's, free consciousness. It's the biggest version of reality that's possible for humans to understand. The least individualized, the least particular, the most general. So, when Gil gave instructions this morning for the meditation, you can see how it's possible, but usually not at the... We wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have given that instruction on the first day of somebody's retreat. For the mind to go from the particular in and out with the breath, stepping with the feet, and so on. To, uh, so that's what we notice. We notice the discrete experiences in order to bring the mind to notice something that's really happening in the present. Then as the mind gets trained to be able to stay with and rest in and notice more subtle changes with the present experience. And then gradually, as we practice, we're able to let go of the deliberate particulars and allow sensation. doesn't matter that it's this kind of sensation happening in this part of the body. The particulars aren't necessary anymore. The mind can rest present, open, and notice a whole flow of changing things. It's awareness. Awareness is a big word. That's a big thing to know is awareness, whereas my in and out breath or my knee pain is particular, separate. We begin to be able to have the, the mind be aware in an open field rather than in a narrow, specific one. But we can't do that usually initially. If we let the mind just be open, if we, you'd had that instruction, you know, last Sunday, last Monday, <laughs> it would have, we wouldn't even know what it meant and it certainly wouldn't have been possible to stay here like that freely and open for most people most of the time we need to collect first to be interested in particular to relax, to stabilize we're gathering ourselves so that when we're more stable we're not jumping off into this idea and then the future and the past idea. In that stable awareness of the present moment, we can stop being, we can stop doing all the doing. The small one, our small ones, were human doings actually, not human beings. 
When you notice your sense of self, you notice your sense of self doing. Chasing, planning, worrying. It's, it's busy, that sense of self. As the mind gets quieter in meditation as a result of training, there's less doing required. Awareness functions. There it is. You aren't doing it. Sounds are heard. Itches are felt on the body. Thoughts are known, coming and going. You're not doing anything. We become human beings. We already were human beings. It's just that we were preoccupied with being human doings. They get in the way. All the things that we think we need to do to become a being. (laughs) How this works, of course, you see the busyness of the doing, the tasks, the plans, the trying, well meant, with the best of intentions, have some effort involved and are therefore stressful. It's a stressful thing to be always doing. To be sometimes doing it's stressful. Compared to being able to rest and just be effortlessly, it's comfortable. It's easy. We have to see what happens with meditation. This is how it works. By being more present, you see the doing behavior. And you don't just see the doing behavior, you see all the effort of it and all the stress of it. When the Buddha said, seen and known, what we mean by the knowing is you really know what's involved with all what you see. We're so sweet, we're so trying so hard and it's so exhausting. The more that is seen, all the little moments of doing this and got to grab that and the busyness is seen and understood and the cost is felt, less and less seems to need to be done. then we realize that as life happens to us, it's a, it visits us. Visitors come. We don't have to do anything about them. Allow them, recognize them. But we don't need to be doing. We don't need to make them stay, make them go, figure them out, blame somebody for them having come, argue. This behavior that we tend to do, trying to make us happy, is, is how the sense of me manifests. It's I show up and do something. I show up to get something, to plan for something. It's I. It's a very interesting thing to meditate and to just observe how many I's there are in your thoughts we'll have thoughts which don't have much I in them. We'll have thoughts like, it's raining. Which I, I, I must want it to be raining, I must be getting dehydrated. <laughs> I get to go home on Monday and be in the rain, I think. 
thoughts like that, just kind of like impersonal little thoughts that don't have a lot of charge and we don't tell a lot of stories, we're just a little commentary. That's going on a lot in the mind. But the thoughts which we get involved with, which then proliferate into more and more and more, I this, I should that, how could I, why did I, I want, I, 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 I. Those are the sticky thoughts we say, the, the thoughts that we get entangled up in, they're all about I. The hindrances, when the hindrances show up, they're all about I. I want, that's the first hindrance. I definitely don't, that's the second. <laughs> I don't know, I'm so sleepy and dull. <laughs> or like, when is the bell going to ring? I don't think I can sit here another second. That's the fourth, you know. Or, you know, like, I don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with this? What should I... I don't know this is the right thing I should be doing. I don't know what... <laughs> That's the fifth hindrance. I, 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 I. The sense of me trying to sort it all out and get it together and do it right and be happy. It's sweet, but it's busy. When there is no wanting, worrying, doubting, anything happening, we call those aha moments, a moment when everything's just as it is. And I'm not showing up doing anything. There isn't a sense of me busy doing. There's simply life happening. And I'm just being here aware of life. I've stopped being a doer and I'm able to be. This is how life happens as we become wiser and how meditation happens the more we practice it. Through this Satipatthana practice this letting go of the I doing things is um, made possible, I would say. When we see the body, the really the body, we, we see what's going on with having skin and muscles and all of the rest of it. The point of that, the point of seeing that, apart from that it has all these benefits I described, the point of it is to not be so enchanted and mesmerized by the identity of it, that beautiful person, this kind of person. We're so identified with ourselves embodied no, I am this kind of a, we mean this kind of a body, but we make it I. We're mesmerized. When we see it more clearly, an accumulation of all these different pits of flesh and bones and blood and everything, the sense of um, attraction and involvement with it breaks down. When we notice, when the Satipatthana practice, the second one of the, of the quality of things, pr- unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, we realize that what, what happens, we aren't taught to do this, but this is what happens. When we see this, we see this, we see I'm wanting pleasant, I'm not liking unpleasant, I want pleasant, oh it's unpleasant, oh it's pleasant, I like, I don't like, I like, I don't. We see how we're endlessly chasing for pleasant and trying to get away from unpleasant. It shows our behavior the qualities of things reveal to us our behavior and how incessant this sense of chasing. When we see the mind itself, 
and we practice Chittanupas, the third foundation, and we're seeing the different states of mind, the delight, the boredom, the sometimes exalted states of mind that Gil described, the whether it's I want this, I don't like that, we see how that mind that we think of as mine is just triggered into change, change, change with every new experience. And we realize that it isn't actually me. There's something that happens and the mind does this, and something happens and the mind does this. And that sense of me, we realize is... Somebody said, never would I make up a mind, would I have designed a mind like that. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's almost a crazy thing having a mind like that that just is so busy, busy reacting, responding, chasing it isn't the way you would necessarily like it to be but we see this, this unbelievable constant change and impermanence in what we thought was a mind, something it's, it's a, a response mechanism that it our way of seeing what we think we are is being broken apart by doing this practice. Shaken up. And then the last one, when we look at things in terms of the dharmas, this fourth foundation, we see the general, we see human beings who are either beset by hindrances and struggling and stressed out in dukkha, or not. In a moment, this human being, whether it's you, whether it's me, not chasing, not, not having a hindrance attack, not having to do anything, being a being, being aware and kind. It's general. So we get to see what's really going on, meaning dharmas, big truths, that's way beyond and around the little sense of me doing all the doings. It's not that we disappear, but it's our experience is, is seen... It's so hard to use the English language for this. It's seen as energy, behavior patterns. The, the individual stories are so less significant. We just don't need to preoccupy ourselves so anymore with the, the little. Energy is moving in this way. This happens, there's a response like this, generating this, moving in this way, shifting through, changing. Change is seen. A reaction that causes stress is seen as stress, met with compassion, shifts into something else, forgiveness, leaves, something else comes. Life becomes this just an interesting flow of impersonal energies. Freedom from the compulsions of having to be me and get it right and get more of this and less of that, which then end up as being experienced as so much stress, so tight, so exhausting, a prison the freedom of the Buddha, if we can see things in terms of the moving of energies, that tight little exhausted one doesn't have to do anything. That's what it means by liberation. Liberation isn't something. It's an absence of the sense of me struggling and trying to something, something, the human doing. It's the being that always was there. Everything's the same. And I'm not showing up in the middle, doing something with it, getting my teeth into it. 
So basically, we become free of ourselves. We become free of the the self-conscious busy one. When we can do this, um, there's a way that, for me, it really it really helps to be able to see my experience, to perceive my experience in terms of the big view of the Dharma. Because of the way I function, is I imagine picking up. It's something like a chopstick in my mind's eye. This is a bit clumsy, but with a set of lenses on the top. And I say, um, I can experience this moment in terms of, let's say, the Four Noble Truths, the most basic way the Buddha taught freedom. So there happen to be two lenses here, but let's pretend there are four. And I'll say, is this moment suffering? Is this moment wanting something to be different and better and therefore suffering? Or is this moment being easy? What's going on here? So I I, I imagine these lists of the dharmas as like demi-lunette, but there's however many of those lunettes that there are depending on the list. And so there's the seven factors of awakening. I can pick up and I can check. Are these, which of these factors is here? I'm having a moment of my life. This is an experience. Are they here? Are the Dharma views here? It's like, because I think of them as glasses, I can see my experience in terms of me, little me, and my needs and likes and complaints and explanation, or I can see them in terms of the overview version, like the big version. So that's the way I I use it. I'll often do it with hindrances. I'll often think, oh, what hindrance? And I know them well I'm familiar with doing it, so I'm familiar with the language of them. It's like, yeah, wanting, that's pretty commonly there, wanting, and there's usually doubt. I usually have doubt and one of the others. Doubt and wanting is my most favorite ones. They're there most of the time. I shouldn't say favorite, but definitely familiar. Um, Doubt and not liking go very together. I'm very, I, I would say I have a tiny bit more regular visiting of wanting than I do not liking, but they're really often both there. I don't like this, I want that. I don't just like this, I want this, and so I better not have that. Like I really like clean floors, which means I don't like dirty floors, right? (laughs) 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 They're really close together there. So when I see crumbs, I don't like the crumbs, because I like it nice and clean. So they're not that away from each other, really. But I do notice the things I like more. I do notice beauty more than I notice the things that irritate me. That's my wiring. But when it's a hindrance, it's like I'm not able to just be with what's happening because I don't like that part of it and I do like that part of it. And I think I've got to do something about it in order to be okay. So I don't just trust that walking on dirty floors is just another experience of life if I've got doubt and aversion happening. So, But I can see, oh yes, look, I'm interpreting my experience of walking on a floor that's got stuff on it and I've got hot feet. 
I'm interpreting that as a problem and I need to change it and then I'll be okay. Or I'm walking on the floor, picking things up with my feet and it's completely fine. There is no... I can, I can say, no, there aren't any hindrances in the way here. And I can do the same thing with the awakening factors and say, the awakening factors, I'll tell you what they are, they're so lovely. Mindfulness, the first one. Being present and knowing what's happening. Interest. Interest. Interest in what's happening, but of course interest in how am I? How am I with this? How am I? Curiosity. The third one is persistence. It's kind of like energy. I'm applying myself. I'm actually applying myself. I'm not just drifting loosely and casually like a piece of flotsam and jetsam. I'm actually onto this. You know, I'm applying myself. I think I like that. Uh, Yeah. Awakening. Alive. There's an alive vitality. The next one is a state of delight. It's like, oh, this is so, this is so neat. And, and they just come. From now on, we do the first three. They, they require a certain amount of effort. And then the rest of them are fruit. They, they arise spontaneously sometimes in their own time. A sense of like, this is, oh, that's, look at that. That's so neat. We recognize something. We understand it brings a, a smile to our minds. And after that one, as these factors strengthen, we become calm. Delight brings us to be calm. It's like, oh, this is great. We trust it. We relax with it. There's a serenity that is the next one. Mm, tranquility. Uh, and then after that, the mind is really willing to behave itself and do what we want it to do because it's steady, it's relaxed, it's calm, so it can become wide. Like this morning, some of your minds could get really wide because they were calm, because you had days of settling down and doing the first three and some of you have had some delight and go, I had this amazing experience. It was like this. There'll be some delight, then some calm. So then the, the sixth one there is concentration, a mind that's well-behaved, like a well-trained dog. It will stay, it'll stand, it'll wait. It'll do what you want it to do, concentration. And the, third, the last one, the seventh one, is a, sten- a sense of being really balanced, which is really broad. When we're broad, we have an experience of bigness, like I'm describing Dharma awareness, little things don't upset us and things seem to be littler. Don't sweat the small stuff, it's all small stuff, you know. That's a Dharma-ing, Dharma saying, as it were. Because we, we see it's all manageable, I can handle, even my old bad habits can come up, okay, I can be sad, sadness, yes, I, there's a steadiness we get. Those are the seven factors. So sometimes I'll pick this up and go like, Hello, factors. Who's here? Oh, yes. There's oh, here's some tranquility. Here's some joy. You know. So, oh, yeah. yes. There's application of energy. There's uh, then my mind's behaving itself. Yeah. And so I, they're like they're friends too, just like the hindrances of your extended family. I think of them as family, and I think of the factors of awakening as friends. <laughs> the friends help you handle the family. You know. So these, these dharmas are ways of seeing your life in terms of hindrances. Instead of me and my mother, it's a hindrance. Or it's a factor of awakening. Instead of, I'm, hey, I'm really, I'm really doing well here. And you have a moment of peace and you know, quiet in your 
meditation. And then in comes the little mind going like, well done, you're getting it together, you're really doing well here, we've got to rush off and tell the teacher. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if there's, you know, when, when there's a, a awakening happening, when there's a factor of awakening, when there's a Dharma view, it doesn't get, you know, it's just, oh, this is tranquility, that's what this is. You know, this is a concentrated state. It isn't about me. It doesn't have to reduce back into being particular again. It's like, oh. And sometimes it changes, and sometimes it will stay for a while. We see things in these bigger terms. It becomes a relief to speak this kind of language. Um, I don't know who they were. I heard this. So I'm sort of quoting somebody who quoted somebody, but you'll get the point. Two wise sages in in history. I don't know if there was... Rumi talking to Hafiz, or I don't know who it was. But anyway, two wise men apparently sitting together outside under a tree in the shade of the tree. And after an hour and a half, one says to the other, looking up, they call this tree. (laughs) Then they both burst out laughing and then they sit silently for another hour and a half. (laughs) In that big mind state, and then the particular of like naming things and It's just life, their life, life, they're underneath parts of life, nature manifesting. It's the little mind that breaks it into these little pieces. And we do it, we have to do that to communicate, to survive, to get the right food. You know, it's fine that we do it. But all of these teachings are to help us grow way beyond that way, that mode. I think one of the simplest, most helpful, direct ways of doing this way of picking up my glasses and seeing, trying to see my experience in terms of the big view, which frees me from my little way of relating to it, um, are the noble truths. And uh, it's so so easy and quick and momentary and accessible for anybody to see to see what's going on and suddenly see it in the dar- Dharma language, Dharma view, big view, so releasing. So um, the first noble truth is we're struggling, there's stress, the system gets uptight, it gets anxious, it's busy, Mm-mm-mm, busy being a human doing, that feeling of churning. We often have no clue about it because it's completely normal for us. And so it's like the ocean, you know, the fish cannot tell it's in water because that's all it's ever known. And so we don't know that we're busy and that we're doing it. But that's what, there is a sense of disease. The only way we get to really be able to tell is, as Gil already has said, when we have moments when it's peaceful, then we really recognize, oh, look how stressful that when I get with the my thoughts again, they really are tight and exhausting. So there's that sense. So we, we begin, the more we practice, we get these moments when it's no sense of me doing anything about anything. We're being, and then in comes the me doing something, and we really feel the difference, and you can feel the churning and stressing of meing. So there's that churning feeling, dukkha it's called, D-U-K-K-H-A. And... The reason that we're stressing is that we do not accept what's happening. We think we can improve it. Fix it, change it, get more of it, less of it. Some way or other, we need to manipulate something. It's not acceptable enough. It's a very arrogant approach. 
We've learned it because we can do so much about so much. We can change practically weather patterns. We can certainly grow food where we shouldn't. We used not to be able to. We can build fortifications. We've learned to dominate the world so much that we really have so much confidence in what we can do that we go there as our choice to make things good for ourselves to be happy. But it's that wanting it to be different that is the cause for that sense of churn. Those are one and two noble truths and they go together. Without one, you don't have the other. If there isn't wanting it to be different, there isn't any dissatisfaction. If there's dissatisfaction, it's because you want to be satisfied with something different than what's happening. So they're the same thing, really, one and two together. The third one is when that's not happening. There isn't any dissatisfaction and then there isn't, you know, because you're not wanting to do anything about anything. That sense of me hasn't shown up. Or it's evaporated. Usually it shows up and then it's seen and then it evaporates and then it's like leaves you with no meing to do anything about anything and no dukkha. That's freedom. It's the third noble truth. The fourth noble truth is how do you get from one and two to three? How does that become accessible to you? You have to actually practice four, which is meditate, live carefully and wisely. Keep seeing things in terms of big view. Keep picking up these glasses and going like, oh, hindrance attack. Oh, tranquility. See things in their big terms. Oh, struggling, not struggling. Struggling, not struggling. Tight, struggle, struggle, dukkha, dukkha, first and second. Oh, freedom, third. Simple. To keep doing that, that's the fourth. We have to keep practicing in this way, living really conscientiously, carefully, conscious of our speech, and so on and so forth. Practicing mindfulness, practicing concentration. So we do, those are how we train. We need to train ourselves because we can't just jump from one and two to three naturally. We just keep doing two and therefore feeling one. So we need to meditate. So we have this ability to move into the big view, the Dharma view, the third number three, ease, space, allowing, metta, friendliness, interest. That, that, so even, I mean, we work on consciously being here, awake, making choices, being good with our sila, our, you know, our ethical behavior and so on, our precepts in life. That's the, the fourth, the training. But in a moment, when you have any experience, is it, are you struggling? Are you wanting it to be different or not? Are you struggling? Do you want it to be different or not? Is it okay? Or isn't it okay? It's so quick. It's so right here. Just pick up those three lenses. One and two and three. (laughs) Which is it now? Oh, look. Oh, look. Oh, look. And in the moment that you see it in terms of dharma like that, in terms of big truth, that moment, it moves you out of me and my story and me and my doing. And all of a sudden you stop doing anything and in a moment there's some ease. That's how it, it works. It's so brilliant. (laughs) Hmm. so awakening is like that it's like a moment 
of shift from preoccupied wanting it to be different to going, oh, it's like that. It's a sudden moment. It happens quickly. But it doesn't just happen out of the blue. It happens as a result of practicing. Even though an experience of shifting from being confused and tight and busy doing to being is a momentary experience, it doesn't stand alone. And the metaphor that I like a lot is um, it's like the chick hatches out of the egg suddenly. But it didn't just hatch out of the egg. It got sat on by the, the hen for three weeks. So... It's hatching isn't separate from having been kept warm for three weeks. So we're doing the sitting. We're being the hen, sitting, 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 sitting. And then a moment of, whoop, a chick comes out. Not just out of the blue. It's part of sitting. But the moment that we recognize something, oh, there's a sense of freedom instead of a sense of compression. Or that is a moment. So both, there's lots of discussions. Is, an, is, is awakening sudden or is it a gradual thing? And the Theravadans teach about the practice of, of training. The emphasis is in training rather than moments of awakening. It's like, well, do this and you'll see what happens. Awakening happens, guaranteed. If we talk, the, the Buddha didn't focus about goals. He didn't want to get you ahead of yourself. He would say, do this, do this, practice this way, see what happens yourself. And you see for yourself moments of freedom. You've been telling them to us all week long. Your own particular moments of realizing things and the feeling of it. So the thing that I do like to emphasize is how we really can tell the difference between struggling, first noble truth, and because I'm wanting something, greed or hatred is happening, or the third one, which is a moment where that's not there, is how it feels. Because I'm so somatic. When I'm struggling, I feel it's rough in there. There's, there's like machinery going along. And for me, my nature is I'm pushing. There's, I'm a forward push. There's a little, mm, got to do something about something. Some people are shrinkers. Some people are kind of like, oh, uh, and they kind of like space out. That's not my way. You know, my way is. And when it's not there, when it stops, and usually what happens in my process is I'm just going along being relatively mindful and then I see a moment of push and tension and and when I see it, it goes poof. And then there isn't any push and there isn't any... And then it's like somebody turned the machine off. It's like, you know, when the fridge goes off and it's like... It's lighter. It's sweet. It's fun. Instead of... For me, I'm in, in, in a cage, and, but I'm definitely a motor somehow. I'm a <laughs> so I feel it. I can feel moments of freedom in my being, in my energy body. Oh, I don't know what you want to call it. I encourage you to be conscious of it in that way. Because it's so recognizable. Is there stress, struggle? What's it like for you? Is there not? And it's those increasing moments when there's ease, or there's trust, or there's friendliness, there's acceptance are what reflect those other times when we get caught up, get pushy again, whatever it is, shrinky or angry, whatever you do, whiny. And that's how we really learn. It's how our system, it struggles when it's confused and there's me. And when it doesn't struggle, it's like, oh, what a relief. And the relief shows the struggle. 
and we don't have to remember and do it right and be good and learn all the lists and we just tune in to how it feels. What does it feel like in a moment? Is it ease for you? Is it spacious for you? Is it warm for you? What is it? And it'll be your own language, your own way of experiencing. But the more we have those moments, the more the sense of me is not so fun. I knew somebody once and when I was in Burma had this conversation about the um, greed and hatred and delusion as called defilements. They're kind of like or poisons, some people call them. They're like distortions of the clear mind. And I was messing around with the word defilement because I hate that word, defilement. It's like so old-fashioned for one thing, but so disgusting. And this person, she said, she said, um, oh, they're disgusting. You don't want them in your mind. (laughs) (laughs) That's a somatic response. (laughs) (laughs) Greed to her is disgusting. It's your own way of experiencing. So I just, I do encourage you, experience your truth. What's so for you? When is it the small you struggling? And when is that that bigger sense of seeing and understanding that the struggling can just subside? It's moments, but they add up. Those moments grow on themselves because our whole system knows it wants those moments of ease and light and warmth. We don't want those lonely, isolated, exhausting, miserable struggles. So you'll see them. See them. See the struggles and see the absence of struggles. That's our practice. Our practice is our teacher. Just practice. So we'll practice for a couple of minutes. <laughs>